He comes down to the 16th verse, nearly everybody's favorite verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe on him should, perish, should not perish but have eternal life. But two verses prior to that, in verse 14, talking about, clearly talking about salvation, clearly talking about being born again, clearly talking about the benefits of God, the spiritual benefits of God at least, we see in verse 14 that Jesus said, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now, folks, there's only one thing that could possibly mean, and that is Jesus is saying that this event in Numbers chapter 21 was a type of himself. It was a type of the work of Jesus that would be performed on the cross. Now, this is not some wild-eyed charismatic preacher trying to twist the word and say that this is the way that it is. This is Jesus himself saying that the Old Testament example of Numbers 21, when Moses lifted up the serpent of brass in the wilderness, is a type of himself. He's saying what the Old Testament action of Moses did or took and the results of the Old Testament example is a type of what he will fulfill as his, uh, in his work as the Messiah. Now there's two things the serpent of brass on the pole did for the people. It provided forgiveness for their sins. They had repented of their sins, but they still have to be forgiven of them. It provided forgiveness of sins, and it provided healing for their physical bodies. But notice the responsibility of the people. The responsibility of the people is very simply, when he looks upon it, when he looks upon that fiery serpent on the pole, God told Moses, when he looks upon it, he shall live. And so Moses, again, verse 9 Moses made a serpent of brass and put it on a pole, and it came to pass that if any serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld, notice that word, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. Now verse 8 talks about when he looks upon the, the pole, the serpent of brass on the pole. Verse 9 talks about when he beheld it. Now beheld is a continuous action verb. It means an ongoing look. See in verse 8 where it says when he looks upon it he shall live, that doesn't mean just a casual glance. It means a staring at. It means being occupied with something. It means looking and continuing to look no matter whatever else is going on around you, turning away from everything else and looking only under what God had said. Now, folks, the reason that that's important is because the snakes were still in the camp. The reason that, that was important, and the Bible never tells us that the snakes ever left the camp. So the looking at the pole, the serpent of brass on the pole, the vision, the, the expectancy that was identified and exemplified by the continuous action of looking at the pole and not looking at anything else, not looking at the circumstances around their feet, not looking at how fierce the snakes look or how much uh, I, I imagine a uh, fiery serpent being something like a rattlesnake. I grew up around rattlesnakes, and so I know a little bit more about them than perhaps the type of snakes that they had in the, in the wilderness. But no matter the, the noise that they might make, no matter the threat that they might pose, it says when they beheld the serpent of brass on the pole, that per person lived. Now here's the question. Throughout church history, well maybe not at the beginning of it, but as generations came along, many people developed the idea that healing was not part of the atoning work of Jesus. Now atonement really is an Old Testament word. It means to cover over. And the Day of Atonement, for example, was a day where the blood of bulls and goats would cover over the sins of the people. It didn't remove them, but it covered them over. Now, the reason it didn't remove them 
and was only able to cover them is because an animal sacrifice was not worthy or not sufficient to change the nature of the person it was being offered for. But Jesus' blood was. Jesus is identified as the lamb that was slain, but his blood did a job, a work of forgiveness and a work of healing once and for all. And that's the type. Numbers 21 is the type that Jesus' blood being shed, his death, burial, and resurrection fulfilled. Now, if Jesus knows that in the day of the church that we live in, that if healing is not available for us, then why in the world did he use the example, a type in the Old Testament that covered not only forgiveness of sins, but healing for the people? Doesn't Jesus know, as some people surmise and some people preach, doesn't Jesus know that healing's going to be done away with somewhere down the road? Well, then why didn't he modify his words? And why didn't he say for a while, I'll be fulfilling the type of Numbers 21, but there'll come a time where that won't be available to the people any longer? Well, the simple fact is, folks, the Bible says God never changes. He said it a little bit more emphatically than that. He said, I am God, I do not change, or I change not. And then we know from Hebrews chapter 13 that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So the Jesus that was the healer on the earth during his earthly ministry, healing the sick, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, teaching in their synagogues, and healing every manner of sickness and disease among the people. If he's not still in that same healing business, then he's changed. Thank God he never changes. So Jesus identifies himself as the fulfiller, as the Messiah. He fulfills the, the type, the Old Testament type, that included not only forgiveness of sins, but also healing for the physical body. Now, folks, if that work of Jesus on the cross doesn't provide the same two things, forgiveness of sins and healing for our physical body, then they had it better with the type than we have it with the fulfillment of the type. Well, that wouldn't make sense. Why would God do a lesser work under the new covenant when the blood of Jesus was worthy to redeem man from any and all sin for all time? And under the old covenant type, they had forgiveness of sins and healing for their physical body when they were under a worse covenant than we have. It just doesn't make sense. Now, the Bible tells us that in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word should be established. In the mouth of two or three witnesses. I want to read this again from Numbers chapter 21, verse 9 again. And it says, And Moses made a serpent of brass and put it upon a pole. And it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, again, it's talking about a continuous look. When he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. Now turn with me over to Romans chapter 4. We want to look at some things that Paul said by the Holy Ghost concerning our faith and Abraham being our, our example. The Bible talks about Abraham being the father of faith. Well, what was it that made Abraham strong in faith or made him to be the example for us to follow? Verse 17, as it is written, here's what the Old Testament says, God spoke to, Mo, to Abraham and said, I have made thee a father of many nations before him whom he believed even God, who quickeneth the dead and calleth those things which be not as though they were. There's a difficult translation 
that we need to identify here in verse 17. Here where it says before him whom he believed, that word before means to be like something. It should be translated like unto him whom he believed. In other words, it's telling us that Abraham became an imitator of God. A part of Abraham's example of faith to us. A part of the faith that we're supposed to follow and the means and the, and the characteristics thereof to develop in, in and of ourselves. It tells us that Abraham became like unto God. He became an imitator of God. Now, how did he imitate God? Well, the Bible says he imitated him in two ways. The second one we'll take first. The second was he began to call things that be not as though they were. Now, part of that was inherent in Abraham's life at the point in time that God brings him a child. Here's what I mean by that. At age 75, God appears to Moses and says, follow me to the land that I show you and I'll make you, uh, make, I will bless you and I will provide children for you and I will make you a blessing. Abraham follows. He winds up coming to what we know of as the land of Canaan or the promised land. He journeyed back and forth for 25 years. Well, 24 years, I guess, really. And then at age 99, God appears to Moses again and talks to him about having this child. At that point in time, Abraham has given up on the whole idea of having children. He has fathered a son through, his, uh, through Hagar, who was Sarah's handmaid. But that never was God's plan, and that turned out to be a, a real bad thing for the children of Israel after he has his own son, Isaac. But God starts talking to him at age 99 about having this son that he promised. Well, as Abraham's body and Sarah's body as well have stopped working in that manner. They're not able to conceive. They're not able to have children. Where before there must have been some physical reason for them not to be able to have children. Now they can't have kids because they're just too old. And so Abraham begins to ask God about this. The scripture says that he laughed in his heart. And God challenged him. He told him that within a year's time, he would have this son of promise, which we know of as Isaac. Isaac would be born. But he changes Abraham's name. One of the things that he does when he appears to Abraham when Abraham was 99 years old is he changes his name from Abram to Abraham, which means father of a multitude or father of nations. Now, God changed his name before he had any children other than uh, um, the child through Hagar, Ishmael. Before he had any other children, before he received the child of promise, before Isaac was born, God changed his name to father of nations or father of a multitude. So every time Abraham identifies, and he has to be the one to do it. There was nobody else present when God changed his name. And so what did he do? Well, apparently, he went to his wife and says, God's appeared to me. He's talked to me about having this child of promise. He said, a year from now, we'd be mother and dad to a new baby boy. But he changed my name. Sarah must have asked, what did he change your name to? Well, he changed my name to Abraham. And I'm sure she was astonished. Why would God call Abram Abraham when he doesn't have any children other than Ishmael. So Abraham has to put in motion. He has to decide whether or not he's going to be called that name because nobody else knows what happened here. This was done privately between Abraham and God. 
But he takes upon himself the name of Abraham, which is an act of faith. He begins to say, and everybody that calls him by name begins to confess over him. So he's saying it himself, and he's hearing other people call him the father of a multitude. One child, Ishmael, but his name is changed to father of a multitude. So what Abraham does is he becomes an imitator of God, and every time he calls himself by name, every time he instructs somebody or tells somebody what his name is, he's calling himself and speaking to his life and speaking to his own condition, his own circumstances. He's calling things that be not as though they were. He's calling himself the father of a multitude when he only has one child, and that's by Hagar. He's calling himself the father of a multitude. So he's imitating God who calleth things that be not as though they were. Now the other part of it is a little bit more difficult for us to understand. Because it says like unto him or uh, before him whom he believed. Talking about being an imitator of God. The second characteristic that he had to become an imitator of God in was quickening the dead. Now folks that means to make dead things live. Well, certainly that would apply to his body because both Abraham and Sarah's body were dead reproductively. How do you become an imitator of God, an imitator of quickening the dead? Well, Abraham came to find out something that we know through the scriptures, and that is you can have what you say. So when God quickens the dead, he quickens the dead by his word. So Abraham became an imitator of God. He began to speak life unto his body. He had to have done this, folks, or else there wouldn't have been any change. He had to begin to speak life unto his body. Now, get this in order here. He's imitating God by calling things that be not as though they were, by calling himself his new name, which means father of a multitude. And he's also speaking life unto his body. You won't find any time that God brings back someone from the dead without his word. Every time, every place that God quickens the dead, it's always through his word. So if Abraham is going to be an imitator of God, and he was, thank God he was, Abraham began to speak life unto his body. Now, I don't know how, what form that took. I don't know if he began to say, body, live. I don't know if he began to say, my body does, my, mine and Sarah's bodies do function reproductively. I'm not sure how, what that looked like. But the Bible identifies it as being like God or imitating God by speaking life unto his body and by calling himself the father of a multitude. So again, verse 17, as it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations. God said he already was before he had a child. Before him or like unto him who he believed, even God who quickens the dead and calleth those things which be not as though they were. Now, folks, if we just stop right there, we get a, a summary of what Abraham did, specifically what he did to fulfill the promise of, of the child that God had given him, to come to the place where he and Sarah conceived, even though their bodies were physically unable to do so, you would think, because of their age or ages. He has to speak life unto his body. That's the only way that, he can, that God can quicken the dead and the only way we can be an imitator of him. And he's calling things that be not as though they were. He's calling himself the father of a multitude. But the Bible tells us about specific things that were involved in this. 
See, if we just take Abraham and say, well, Abraham spoke life to his body and he called things that be not as though they were, we wouldn't have an accurate picture of what he was having to do day by day by day. And you know as well as I know that it's great and we get charged up and, and encouraged when we pray the prayer of faith over ourselves or somebody else joins with us in the prayer of agreement. But that's not the point where the devil starts leaving you alone. That's the point where the devil starts telling you that it's not going to work. So what would Abraham have done during that year period of time? Day after day after day. Well, here's the daily experience of Abraham and how he stayed in faith. Verse 18, who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations according to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. Now, folks, I would submit to you that the translators didn't understand much about the operation of faith. I don't doubt that they were saved. I don't doubt that they had become children of God and experienced a new birth. But there's no way in the world that the translators had much information, much if any information, about how faith works. Because if they did, I'm sure they would have said it in a lot simpler terms. But it's left for us who do know something about faith, who do understand the principles of faith, being of the heart, believing in the heart and saying with the mouth. It's up to us to decipher what he did and how he did it if we're going to follow his example of faith. So here where it says, who against hope believed in hope. Well, the Bible says that faith is the substance of things hoped for. If you don't have any hope, you can't have any basis for faith. If there's no hope for him to have a child, then he certainly can't believe that he will have one. But there's nothing in his physical circumstances or his physical body, his or Sarah's, that gives them anything to hope for. There's no change that was made in their bodies in the beginning. We don't really even know what changes and what all took place for them to be able to conceive and have a child to bring forth Isaac. But they certainly didn't have any physical uh, circumstances or any physical evidence to bring hope to them that they could have a child. In fact, the only evidence they have speaks against the possibility of them having a child. So what do they do? Well, if they don't have any natural hope, if they don't have any hope in the physical realm, they're going to have to get hope from somewhere. Well, where does that hope from, come from? They base their hope on what God said. God said, I have made thee the father of many nations. They didn't have any physical evidence to support that. So they said, well, God said it, and God's word is always true. Since God promised it, then that's good enough for us. So against hope, against natural hope or natural circumstances, they believed in the hope that came from the word. Well, what was the word that they, put, that they had to hope in? So shall your seed be. That's a reference to when in uh, Genesis chapter 15, the early part of the chapter, God speaks to Abraham and talks to, him, talks to him about his seed being like the stars of the sky. He showed him the nighttime sky and asked him how many stars that he saw and Abraham said, there's no way to count them. And God said, in just the same way, it'll be towards your children. So shall your seed be. Well, now they've got hope. They've got hope to be parents. But how are they going to turn that hope into a physical reality? How are they going to bring it into the physical realm? Verse 19, and being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead when he was about 100 years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. Now it tells us what he didn't look at. It tells us that he considered not his own body. Remember where we started over in Numbers chapter 21 when he beheld, when the ones that were sick from the snake bites beheld 
the serpent of brass on the pole, they were healed. Well, here we've got a situation where it tells us, the Bible tells us about what Abraham looked at. Here's what faith sees. I like that. Let's say that again. Here's what faith sees. Being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead. When he was about 100 years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. He didn't discount, he didn't deny the circumstances as they were. But he said that we've got something that's more real, more true than even the physical circumstances of our bodies. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. I like the American Standard Version on this a little better. It's a little clearer. It says, Abraham, looking unto the promise of God, staggered not through unbelief. Well, that tells us what he's looking at then. He's looking at the promise. He's looking at what God said, so shall your seed be. He's looking at God's promise of in a year from now, from the time that he appeared to him, he'd have a child. But his body contradicts that truth. His body contradicts what God said. Every day he's getting up. Every day he's dealing with his body. He knows what his body is telling him. He knows exactly what's going on with his flesh. He knows that he's too old to have children. He knows it's a physical impossibility for him and Sarah to conceive a child. Yet he continues to look at what God said rather than what the circumstances are. Now the Bible identifies that as strong faith. He was strong in faith giving glory to God. We know that he didn't consider his body. It doesn't mean he denied the circumstances of his body. But he looked at a truth that was greater than the fact. He looked at a truth of God's promise that was greater than the fact of due to his age, his lack of ability for his body to perform as God said that it would. Every day he has to make a choice. What am I going to look at? I can look at one hand on my body and how I feel. I can see that there's no change today from yesterday. So he can give up on the promise of God and say, well, I guess God missed it some way or another. Or he can look at the promise of God and in spite of the conditions of his body, in spite of the the, the terrible symptoms that he experiences, terrible in the sense that it refutes the, uh, the claim that God would make his children like the stars of the sky. He has a choice to either look at his body, look at his symptoms, look at his physical condition, or he can look at the promise of God. Strong faith continues to look at the promise of God no matter whatever else is going on. Now, folks, this is an example or a, a, another type, another example that fulfills Numbers chapter 21 and what Jesus said. Jesus said that he was the type of the serpent of brass on the pole. Under the old covenant, the Bible says, when the people beheld the serpent of brass, when they kept their eyes on that and not on anything else, then they were not only forgiven of their sins, but they were healed in their body. Now we've got another proof text from Abraham, the father of faith. It tells us that when he was faced with an impossible circumstance, when it seemed impossible for God's word to come to pass and to be fulfilled in his life and in his body, it tells us what he looked at. He became an imitator of God by speaking life to his body and continued to look at the promise of God. He continued to look at the promise, the statement that God made, so shall your seed be. Now, folks, that promise is probably 15 or 20 years old. It was 15 or 20 years after God said that I'll, uh, your, star, your seed will be as the stars of the sky. 
until it came to pass and took place, became a reality in his family and his life. But here where God speaks to him in the last, the 99th, uh, age 99, the last year that he waited for the promise to come, God gives him the truth and he fixes his attention on that and never looks away. He never looks away. Strong faith continues to look at the promise of God no matter what the circumstances are. Strong faith looks at the promise of God and holds fast to that that the promise shows him. Abraham is thinking every day about the child to be born and the descendants that would come from that child because that's the picture God painted for him when he spoke these words. So strong faith, strong faith looks unto the promise of God first and foremost. It doesn't deny the circumstances and, and oftentimes we'll have to deal with the circumstances as we need to, whether it's through medication or whatever in the area of sickness. But strong faith continues to look at the promise of God. And then strong faith will produce two things. It'll produce praise, even if it's a sacrifice of praise. And it'll produce belief in the impossibility or the possibilities of God in every circumstance and situation. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully persuaded that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. Now we've got two things, two examples. The first was the serpent of brass that provided forgiveness of sins and healing for the physical body. Here it doesn't say anything about forgiveness of sins, but we see and know that Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. So we know that Abraham is in good stead with God based on a promise of righteousness that was yet to come. So there's no unforgiveness, there's no sin that's holding back, and there's healing for his body that's offered through the promise of God. Now let me show you a third sample, a third example. And that's over in James chapter 5. Verse 14. James is writing to the church and he says, Is any sick among you? The, reason the, the way that he asked that implies that there shouldn't be any sick among the church. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church. And let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Verse 15. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick. I want you to look at that word save. That word save is the Greek word sozo, S-O-Z-O. And it's used throughout the scripture in a variety of ways. It's translated healing. It's translated whole. It's translated save. Well, here when he's talking about is any sick among you, he's obviously talking about the prayer of faith saving or healing the sick, being healed and being saved from sickness. But don't take my word for it. Look up in, in your own Bibles. And see the different times and places that this word sozo is translated something else other than save. For example, in Mark chapter 5, where it says that Jairus came to Jesus and said, My little daughter lieth at home sick of the palsy at the point of death, but if you'll come lay your hands on her, she'll be healed. That word healed is this word sozo. She'll be healed and not die. It tells us about the woman with issue of blood that comes to him in Mark chapter 5. And she says, if I can but just touch the hem of his garment, I shall be whole. That word whole is the word sozo, S-O-Z-O. It goes down into verse 34, and Jesus said, daughter, your faith has made you whole. That's the word sozo. Well, wholeness means healing. Very clearly identified as healing in that circumstance. Over and over and over again throughout the New Testament, 
where the Bible speaks of the word saved, it, it is most often this word sozo that means healing too. So God makes no distinction between forgiveness of sins and healing for the physical body. We see that here in James chapter 5 as well as the other places. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save or heal the sick. And the Lord shall raise him up. Now get this. And if he has committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. So now the only instruction that the Bible gives to the church concerning healing the sick, the only instruction it gives us to help those in our congregation, those that are a part of our family, the only instruction is the instruction of faith, the prayer of faith that not only produces forgiveness of sins, but also produces healing for the physical body. And if they've committed sins, they shall be forgiven in. And the prayer of faith shall heal the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up. The Lord shall raise him up. The Lord shall raise him up. Folks, all we have to do is put our faith in God. All we have to do is act on the, the instructions that the Word gives us. We see that the Old Testament example of the children of Israel beholding the serpent of brass on the pole, that's an act of faith. They're looking away from everything else. They're looking away from every other circumstance and looking unto that which God said represented Jesus. They're looking to the serpent of brass through obedience. They're looking unto Jesus. Abraham's case, he looks away from the circumstances of his body. He doesn't consider his body dead or, his, or Sarah's body dead. But he's looking at the promise of God that said he'll become the father of multitudes. The father, is a, a father of nations. And here in James chapter 5, the prayer of faith shall heal the sick. The prayer that believes that it receives when it prays. The prayer that calls things that be not as though they were. That prayer will heal the sick every time. And the Lord shall raise him up. And if he's committed sins, notice it's not a different work. It's not a different prayer. The same prayer that forgives sins, the prayer of faith is the prayer that brings healing to our physical bodies. And the Lord shall raise him up. The prayer of faith shall heal the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up. The prayer of faith shall heal the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up. Folks, we need to realize that our healing in the beginning is a spiritual thing, but through the prayer of faith, we believe that we receive when we pray. And then God, through our faith, makes it a reality in the physical realm. Our faith gives substance to our healing and brings it into reality in our bodies and in our physical realm, our physical lives. Folks, healing belongs to us. Jesus died just as much to heal our bodies as he did to forgive us of sin. We see that in Isaiah 53. In the Messianic chapter, the great Messianic chapter, it says in verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our pains. Actually, the, the King James says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. But that word grief is sickness, and the word sorrows is the word pain. Surely he has carried our sickness and bore our pains. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. Here's the summary of what Jesus did on the cross. He was wounded for our transgression, that's sin. He was bruised for our iniquities, that's sin too. The difference between 
transgressions and iniquities in this case is he forgave us from individual sins, but he gave us, forgave us from the, the original sin of Adam in the Garden of Eden that opened the door to sin and death upon all of mankind. So he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace, that means our well-being, means financial well-being as well as every other area. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Jesus has done a complete work through his sacrifice. He redeemed us from sin. He saved us from poverty. And he healed us from sickness and disease. And if we do the same thing that the children of Israel did in Numbers chapter 21 and behold him on the cross, meaning keep our eyes on what Jesus did and accomplished for us through his death, burial, and resurrection and pray the prayer of faith, the prayer that believes it receives healing when it prays, not when it sees a change, not when it feels any different, but the prayer that believes it receives healing when we pray, the Bible says we'll have that which we believed. The Bible says that that which Jesus purchased will be ours in reality, in truth, and in physicality. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father, we bless your holy name. We thank you for your great plan of redemption. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you took upon yourself stripes, the punishment of sickness and disease, and that by your stripes, through that which you suffered, we are healed. Father, there are many people that are listening to this, many people under the sound of my voice that are standing in faith for your healing power and your healing mercy to bring into reality that which the Bible says is ours. So we affirm that we believe we receive healing for our physical bodies from the top of our heads to the soles of our feet. We believe, Father, that your word is true. And so therefore, being an imitator of God, just like Abraham did, Father, we speak life unto our bodies. We tell our bodies to line up with the word of God. We choose to glorify your name, Lord, to praise you for that which we do not yet see, but that which we believe to be real because you cannot lie. So we thank you, Lord, that you're raising us up the prayer of faith has healed us and you are raising us up. And there's no sin that can stop the power of God, the healing power of God from being ours because you, commit, you forgive us of any sins we committed at the same time that you bring healing to our bodies. Lord, we love you. We bless your holy name. We magnify you. We declare that we're healed from the top of our head to the soles of our feet. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.